So you guys ready? You're listening to Snap Judgment, recorded before a live audience at the Oakland Museum of California. From PRX and NPR, get ready. My mother has a huge family. And every year, they have a family reunion. And she's always trying to get me to go, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. I haven't gone since I was a little kid. Finally, she wore me down. All right, let's go. It was getting our family reunion on, you know, bean bagging and horseshoes. It's a three-day affair. And my mama said, look, look ahead. You got a cousin that lived up in Malaysia. You live in Malaysia. I want you to go talk to her right away. She's right over the hill. Get over there. All right. How you doing? What's going on, La? Bahasa Malaya, La. And she's like, I don't speak none of that nonsense. Uh, my mom tells me you lived in Malaysia. Uh, did you have a good time over there? <sighs> Better still. I got a question for you. Uh-huh. Have you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> as your personal savior? Well, you know what? Um, my religion is kind of complicated. And, um, you know, I'm just living, let live right now. We're just in the middle of the family reunion. I ask you a question. Have you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior? It was real nice meeting you. I'm going to go stand over here now. And she said, What? Excuse me, what did you say? Hey, 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 hey. You speaking in tongues at me? I don't appreciate people speaking up in tongues at me. Please stop speaking in tongues at me. Because guess what? Guess what? You ain't the only one that can speak in tongues. I gave right back as good as I got. And you got to understand, speaking in tongues around my family is like hitting the 911 button. People came, it's an emergency. People came quick, running, top speed. What is going on? And I am the obvious interloper. So they start speaking in tongues, helping out. And, and the force is strong with them. The force is strong. So they, they're pushing me back, right? And I finally, I know I got to give up the ghost. And I start running back over the hill. I'm running over there, top speed myself. I'm gone. And there, there my mother is, drinking some lemonade. So, son, <laughs> did you meet your cousin? <laughs> Welcome. The Snap Judgment.
Jeff Judgment. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. This one, we're calling Drama Mama. <laughs> All kinds of stories today. From the best storytellers in the entire nation. Believe me when I say, this right here, storytelling with a beat. I'm afraid you cannot have a beat, friends. There is no beat without a band. Please give it up for Mr. Alex Mandel and the Snap Jumping Players. <laughs> DJ. DJ. Which one? Which one? Dig it. Started. I'm not gonna keep you waiting. Our first. Our first guest of the evening, our first storyteller, Mr. David Perez. I would lose my roots. My grandma brought me to a quinceanera. Now this was just one of many insurrections to make sure that I did not bleach under an American sun. I remember Sunday mass and its three-hour ceremony held completely in Spanish at the church of Our Lady of Perpetual Guilt. <laughs> I went to places whose rituals were as strange to me as their language was foreign. Dia de los Muertos, Cinco de Mayo parades, banda shows. If you don't know, banda is a form of music. Came out in the 30s when Mexicans began mingling with German Americans in Texas, creating a fusion between mariachi and polka. <laughs> Together at last. <laughs> but my grandma taught me the steps, told me that dance is the language of the soul. Tienes que permanecer mexicano, hijo, she'd say. This will help me remain Mexican. As if being Mexican were like reeling in a fish. Not something that you are, but something on the end of a line pulled so taut it cuts. And if you let go, you never see the damn thing again. Now for a while, my broken Spanish and my olive complexion sufficed. Didn't matter that I had Tarzan's vocabulary and my mother's slanted eyes. At least, I wasn't white. I slid by. Until one day, at age 17, when my grandma found the Playboy in my suitcase. <laughs> Translation, when a Mexican grandmother finds your porn and says, Ay Dios de mi vida, por Dios santo! <laughs> it means, things are gonna be different from now on. From then on, wasn't enough that we went to Sunday Mass. After the ceremony, my grandma would try to hook me up with every girl old enough to have a learner's permit. <laughs> Remaining Mexican became something less like reeling in a fish and something more like finding me an anchor. 
And so a week later, we were on our way to a quinceanera. And if you don't know, a quinceanera is a young lady's coming of age ceremony. Its origins can be traced to the Aztec ritual marking 15, as the age a girl became apt for motherhood. They would light incense and dance in procession. But when the Spaniards came, the Aztec temple became a church and the dance became a waltz together at last. Inside, enough white streamers hang from the ceiling to bend the rafters and the smell, the smell of enchilada sauce and mole thickens the air like incense at Sunday mass. One, two, three, one, two, three, I practice my steps while my grandma goes to work because she has got this speed date dialed in for me, sitting me next to Consuelo, Juanita, Lourdes, Blanca, Orinella, and Liz. <laughs> and it does not help that my uncles keep slipping me shots of Cuervo and play drinking games based on my performance. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know if it's the booze or the pressure or the way the pink chiffon drapes from her shoulders, but when Dios Alina smiles, I kiss her, long and firm, but gentle. And when I'm finished, she looks at me and screams. <laughs> Translation, when a girl at a quinceanera says, it means things are gonna be different from now on. Her cousins grab me, they drag me outside, throw me against a pink limousine, coil their fists, cock them back, and hold. They listen to me plea in my Tarzan Spanish. I no try to make with her. I no try. I sorry. They let me go. Translation, pinche gringo means your heritage is something on the end of a line you let go of because it cuts you back inside. Everyone's too drunk to remember what happened. I take my place on the dance floor. One, two, three, one, two, three. This is the way I remain Mexican, the boys. Make a circle, and the girls dance from one of us to the next, to the next. And then the birthday girl enters, sweeping across the floor. I don't even know her name, but soon I'm dancing with her. And I, I just look at her shoes. Their open toes make her feet look like two caught fish. After tonight, I will never see her again. I twirl her and she gasps. Wow, she says, you're like the best dancer here. I look up, our eyes meet together at last. Now today on Snap Judgment, Mama Drama. We've got stories about mamas and grandmamas, family, sisters, cousins, great grandparents, and this next brother, an amazing dude, a poet, a playwright, a writer, a filmmaker, an actor, Mr. Jamie DeWolf. <laughs>
every family has their black sheep. On my mother's side, our black sheep was a shepherd who enslaved his own flock. The king of the cons, a man who made himself a messiah, even though he never called himself a god. Even tonight, his words are written in steel in titanium capsules in a nuclear reinforced bunker miles underground. So if our whole species goes extinct, his words will still survive. He was a subject we never talked about at the kids' table at family reunions, but he was my great grandfather, L. Ron Hubbard. Lafayette Ron Hubbard. He was born a storyteller, a science fiction writer, a golden-tongued grifter who could write a book in any genre while the publisher waited downstairs in the hotel lobby. Just another name on dime store pulp mags, paid only a penny a page until 1949 when he said, you want to know how you really get rich? You start a religion. A year later, he kept to his word, wrote Dianetics, transforming science fiction into fact until you could pay to flatline your mind for a fee. Overnight, he went from pennies to a profit until the world demanded to see his evidence. But Elron knew if you don't have facts, all you need is faith. So he turned his science into a religion and Scientology was born. A few years later, his son arrived, a baby who had survived an early abortion attempt born premature at two pounds, two ounces, abandoned by his father as he sought fame and fortune. Now he emerged to take his parts of the new family business. He was my grandfather, L. Ron Hubbard Jr. Carrying his father's name and his red hair, Junior became his right-hand man and was a devout disciple and a believer, helping him to construct the church. And it took him years to realize he was only another accomplice. Trained in the arts of electrified hypnotism, blackmail, and beatdowns, he learned to hide his crimes behind his charisma. And it took him a decade to see the holes behind the holy, the man behind the myth, his father. Stuffing thousands of dollars in a shoebox he kept secret underneath the bed, his father. Burning incriminating documents before dawn, his father. Escaping criminal charges as he ran from state to state as Junior watched his family and friends, brains washed, banks broken. Sickened by what he had seen behind the curtain, in 1959, Junior left. But his father always understood retribution better than redemption, and he stalked his son with wiretaps, break-ins, and death threats, my grandfather coming home to photographs of his children in his mailbox, playing on playgrounds, alone and unguarded, to remind him the eye of the pyramid never blinks. While every one of my aunts and uncles were taught how to use a gun, the son, forced to live like his dad, permanently on the run until he changed his last name from Hubbard to DeWolf. A lie to protect him from ever having to tell the truth. When your father has created a religion in your lifetime, there's no son big enough to ever escape his shadow. But there's a thin line between prophecy 
and psychosis and the barefaced messiah ran from countries and criminal charges an international outlaw on a ship escaping extradition his sanity slipping as he started confusing his past from his fiction until one day he vanished before a courtroom or a jail cell could ever make him real again junior now buried under debt tried to flush his father out of hiding to write him a check so we litigated the holy ghost to prove he still had flesh the son took his war public to scrape the idol's gold down to rust junior now a dying diabetic with an amputated foot buried and battered from a decade of lawsuits against the man who carried his same name until the day his dad died in hiding cremated the next morning leaving only a legacy of ashes the church gave the son one final offer arrest your tongue swallow the truth for one final check or you and your next of kin will face a lifetime of threats so we signed away his silence and took his secrets and two heart attacks to his grave another victim the church stopped pretending to save on thanksgiving in a house a self-made god paid for his great-grandchildren never said his name he was the one god we never gave grace to one day my grandfather led me to a bookshelf and showed me volumes of his father's works and he said your mom says you want to be a writer well don't believe everything you read but believe everything you say I never met the man who gave me my red hair, the manic depression still twisted in the strains of my DNA. And the first time I saw a psychiatrist, when he asked me if mental illness runs in my family, all I could say was, yes. <laughs> yes, it does. When I told him my great-grandfather was a cult leader that enslaved the minds of millions, he accused me of having delusions of grandeur. <laughs> what can I say? It runs in my veins. I've been in secret to L. Ron Hubbard Hollywood life exhibits, where his latest victim leads me on a tour of a life he never led, my family written out of existence, and this disciple will never know the legacy of lies that I still carry in my last name, the wolf, a cover story to protect us from my great-grandfather's true children, the army of empty who greet me in train stations with an e-meter and a personality test, and they ask me if I've ever heard of L. Ron Hubbard. And I want to ask them, which one? The son or the father? The God or the man?
Snap Judgment Live, Drama Mama. We'll be right back in a moment. That right there was Snap Judgment Storytelling, and we are just getting started. If you want more, if you want artists to rock it like you just heard it, you have to let people know about the program. Facebook, Twitter, Google+, on the street, on your blog, on your site, from the mountain, iTunes review. Let somebody know what you just heard, Snappers. If you don't get this program on your local public radio station, wave your snap flag high, preach the word, they will listen. This is an experiment. The world's best storytellers can only take the snap stage with your help. Remember, watch the whole television show before the national broadcast. It's our one-year anniversary gift to you. Share it with someone you love. Hide it from someone you hate. Snapjudgment.org. Snap Judgment, baby. Now, I need to get a little spit and polish here first. Our next performer was recently appointed the Arts and Culture Commissioner of Oakland and himself a world-renowned MC, poet, writer. It keeps on getting better. Please put your hands together for Mr. Ice Life. I remember when I didn't know I was black. I didn't know better. I mean, I had no sense of one group of people being better than or greater than another. At best, I knew that certain people belonged in certain places. For example, the orange people that spoke something my mama called Spanish, they lived in the Fruitville. And they sold fruit in bags. The people who were the same color as my grandma they were on TV, you know, like the news. And also, there were cartoons. Elmer Fudd, Yosemite Sam, Daffy Duck was a duck. <laughs> but somehow I knew he was the same color as my grandma too. <laughs> the kids I went to school with with sleepy eyes, they were from far away. And they always had rice in their lunch bags. Peanut butter jelly sandwiches and Capri Suns went in mine. My grandma was born Billy Matsker in 1933 to a family of poor Irish farm workers. Yes, me. Revolutionary black power rapper man, me. My first best friend was an old white lady my grandma, and I loved her very much. I guess because she grew up poor on a farm, she knew how to make fun out of absolutely nothing. Well, I'd say nothing, grandma say nothing. 
For example, she take the, the, the peaches that came in cans and she dump them in the sink, you know? And then she put the cans on the ground and she tap holes in the cans. And then she run string through the cans up to the height of my hands. And in her groggy voice, she'd go, stand on the cans, Isaac. And I'd get on the cans and she'd put the string in my hands like reins. They were stilts. I'd walk around the yard six inches taller than I really was. Clank, 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 clank. I felt like a giant. The kids I went to school with, they made a big deal out of me having a white grandma. Most of us never got to see white people up close unless it was the police. So me having a white grandma meant I got to see Bigfoot up close. She'd pull up to the school to pick me up, they'd go, that's your grandma? And I'd go, yep, and I'd run off to the car. Grandma had this long, old, gold Ford. It didn't have a tape deck, it didn't even have an FM radio. But Grandma didn't care. AM radio provided the soundtrack for old white lady daily life. <laughs> the songs always had this real kind of, you know, Slow, boring, and redundant, easy to dance to. Reminiscent of Jim Crow, but sounds like music to you. But I didn't know they were old white lady songs. I just knew they were songs that my grandma liked. I'd be right next to her singing along. <laughs> As I got older, I stopped getting picked up by grandma and I started catching the bus to her house by myself. I graduated from my peach can stilts to bouts of Scrabble with my grandmother. Me and my grandma, we played Scrabble. It's when I first fell in love with the concept of tying words together, you know? Not only did I graduate from my peach can stilts, I also graduated from my naive view on race. By the time I was 12 years old, I was quite clear that in this country, white meant better. Not only did I graduate from my naive view on race, so did my homies at school. They went from thinking it was cool that I had a white grandma to teasing me for it. That didn't bother me. What did bother me, though, was commentary from two homies in my hood, Kevin and Brandon. Brandon joined the Nation of Islam, and he was 19 when I was 12, so we all thought he was like a super grown-up, you know? He'd stand booming from the corner like it was a podium. All white people are devils. They're all racist. They enslaved black people. They enslaved the whole world. It would drive me crazy. I'd argue with him, going on and on about how that wasn't true. My grandmother was proof. She was a white woman married to a black man and had black children. How could she be racist? Here came Cool Kev. Blood. Just because she be around black people don't mean she ain't racist. Black people don't like black people. So you know white folks don't. <laughs> I felt defeated on the issue, but not about my grandma. I knew she wasn't racist, and she loved me very much. The summer that I was... 14 years old, I went and spent the summer with my brother in Fresno, and my sisters, they flew down to San Diego to spend time with our uncle. When I got back home, I landed at the airport. My mama said, Ice, where you want to go? What did I say? 
grandma's house. Off we went. We got there and right away grandma started setting up the Scrabble board. She started asking me all the questions that grandma's asked, you know, how was your trip? How's your brother? Did you eat? Like I'm not gonna eat. <laughs> Did you talk to your sisters while you were gone? No, but Connie wrote me a letter. She said they're getting dark tans down there from all the sun. And, and then my world changed forever. My grandmother reached across the table and touched my hand. She said, oh no, they're gonna come back looking like little niggers. I fell down inside, then I died a little. I can't tell you what happened next. I don't know if it was nighttime or daytime when we left. I regained consciousness in my bed, weeping, mourning. The way it feels to mourn something you hold tight against the fabric of your being. The thing I was holding on to with all of my young might. The part of me that didn't want to live in a world where anyone, and surely not my grandmother, saw me as a nigger. Useless. A dumb fuck. For the years that grew into my teenage years, I imagine I saw my grandmother no more than a dozen times. We never talked about it, and I just used it as another layer on the callus to weather day-to-day -day life in the hood. Recently, though, I started writing my grandmother a letter. I wrote about what I felt like she took away from me that day in the kitchen, how it made me feel. From a space of growth, I also wrote about my travels and everywhere I've been because I knew she'd enjoy that. And for a moment, I felt a certain nostalgia and it was good to feel her close to me again. My grandmother died before I could deliver my letter. And with her death, also went the opportunity for us to confront this issue and maybe put it behind us. Love conquers hate. But where was the love? Thank you. Our next guest, our next performer, I have no right to feel proud about this young man. We're not related, but I do. Please mark down in your calendars the day you first heard him. You're gonna hear a lot about him later on, I am sure. A poet, a writer. Are you catching this theme here going on? <laughs> Put your hands together from Sir Chaz Jackson.
This is a collect call from the Rappahannock Regional Prison. Will you accept the charges? And I don't have time to ponder that question. I immediately press zero to connect the call with my mother. This call is from an inmate from a correctional institution and is subject to monitoring and recording. As if I didn't already know that. This is not the first, nor will this be the last call I receive from prison. Jump. Every time an 888 number shows up on my cell phone, have to excuse myself, whether I be at work or at church. See, these precious moments cannot pass me by. She is living in times where 18-hour lockdown has become routine and answering to officers as habit. HBO shows like Oz and The Wire have molested my imagination into a high-definition picture of the hellhole where you currently reside. There are two things in this world that should never happen. One, a parent should never have to bury their own child. And two, a child should never have to visit their own parent behind bars. It is unimaginable. Not knowing the next time you'll embrace, it is unbearable. To have to communicate behind a glass barrier, it is unsightly. To see your mother Hair braided in two French braids, dressed in a tan jumpsuit. You see, orange jumpsuits are for the glitz and glam of television purposes. Tan is given to criminals. Messages be subliminal. Hope is often minimal. Tan is the same color as dirt, forcing criminals to contemplate ending it all, returning to the earth. Tan is for black girls who considered suicide when the rainbow wasn't enough. And I want to tell her, though you are in jail, you are not of jail. Then I remind her to pray, but she tells me that she has forgotten how, tries to say the name J, J, G, but her lips cannot form the words, so I pray on her behalf. Calling out the name of Jesus, Rabbi, Teacher, Prince of Peace, Elohim, and I could go on. But then an automated voice comes over the phone and says, there is one minute remaining on this call. Then she tears up. And I do too. But she will never know. She will never witness warm tears nestling down my cheeks. No, I've got to remain strong for her. For now, I will be your knight in shining armor, your pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I will be fond memories of age three right before your parents separated at age four. I will love you evermore. We exchange a dozen I love yous before simultaneously hanging up the phone, never allowing our 60 seconds to run out. No, we control our own destiny. And mom, if you have previously forgotten everything that I have said, then always remember this. Though you did what they said you did, you are not who they say you are. So the next time I hear, this is a collect call from an inmate from a correctional institution. The answer is always, unequivocally, yes, I will accept the charges.
tell you? What did I tell you? What did I tell you? Our next guest is a comedian, a nerd, and she actually taught charm school at MIT. <laughs> Please put your hands together. It's Miss Daya Lakshmi Narayanan. I get a phone call while I'm away at college. It's my mother, my perfectly round mother. She describes herself as a jolly optimist. Once she convinced a family friend of ours not to take her own life by saying, suicide? No, you will not do this. <laughs> because you are too lazy. You will get the stool and the rope and think, I'll do it just tomorrow. <laughs> it worked. That lady's still alive now. I pick up the phone. Baby, it's me. No need to worry. Everything will be okay. You don't have to come home. <laughs> I freak out and book a ticket home. I fly home to find my dad checked out. He's reclining on the Lazy Boy, watching bad TV reruns. Hey, Dad. How are you doing? Shh. <laughs> Matlock is real. <laughs> My dad had just been laid off. And to add humiliation to trauma, he became one of the millions of Americans denied health insurance because of a previously existing condition, diabetes. My brother could feel the middle-class American dream slipping through our hands. Daya, do I have to make fast food burgers? Because that's what the kids at school say that poor people have to do. This was a double insult, because this meant he wouldn't make that much money and we were Hindu vegetarians. <laughs> my family's future was riding on my mom overcoming her past. My mom immigrated from Chennai, India when she was 21 years old. She was the oldest of five children. Her dad died when she was nine years old, and her mother, my grandmother, was a widow in South Indian society, an outcast. She had to give up her children to be raised by others. When my mother married my dad, she weighed 85 pounds because of malnutrition. And she's my height, five feet. In the wedding pictures, she looks beautiful and damn hungry. <laughs> it was this time that my mom decided that she wanted to go back to school. Baby? I think at this age, 40, I want to go back to school. Mom, you're 45. <laughs> we don't have to tell everybody the truth all the time. She asked me to help out. She has to take a basic math exam to get into school. And she's getting stuck on the transitive property. Transitive property. Two definitions. First, 
of or characterized by transition. My family knew this all too well. My mom only admitted to me a few years ago we were on food stamps for the first three years of my life. Definition number two from math. If A is equal to B and B is equal to C, therefore A is equal to C. I don't understand this. Explain it to me again. Explain it to me again. Well, it just means if A is equal to B <laughs> and B is equal to C, therefore A is equal to C. You just said the same thing slower and louder. That doesn't help me. Well, I don't know what to do. So then I decide to explain it in Tamil which is my mom's first language. But the thing is, I don't know how to say equals in Tamil. And A, there's five characters associated with A. So it ends up just sounding like A, B, equal on the, B, C, equal on the, A, C, equal. You just said the same thing with useless Tamil words thrown in for my benefit. I don't know how else to explain this to you. This is basic math. It's very easy. Didn't you learn this at school or anything? And at this moment, my mother speaks to me directly in Tamil. And when she speaks in Tamil, it's like speaking in italics because she's about to say something honest and truthful that's not masked by humor and jokes. So translated, it was something like, in my childhood, nobody cared if I had eaten that day. If I was at school, it meant I was out of the way. Didn't matter if I learned anything. This is why I'm not smart. Not like you and your brother. Mom, you're smart. You're really smart. You had to learn English when you came to the United States. How did you do that? Lucy, Carol Burnett, <laughs> TV shows. That's American, Mom. Okay. What's your favorite show now? The one with the Jew. Can you be more specific? Seinfeld. 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 Okay. Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. So, like, if Jerry Seinfeld tells Elaine a secret, that's like A is equal to B. And if Elaine tells that secret to Kramer, B equals C, that's just as if Jerry had told Kramer in the first place. A is equal to C. Oh, it is very simple. <laughs> My dad is retired and he has health insurance. His diabetes is under control. He doesn't watch Matlock, he prefers Monk. My brother, he doesn't make as much money as he would have if he stayed flipping burgers. Because he's a graduate student at Yale. My mom passed that exam, she got into school, and now she works as a software engineer. She has finished watching all the Seinfeld episodes, so now she tries to explain friends to me. A and B went out, B and C broke up, D and E got back together, so that's just like A and E dating, right? <laughs> that's my mom.
Ladies and gentlemen, you have waited long enough. A veteran, they're at the very beginning of snap judgment. A writer, poet, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> this person, his name is Joshua Walters. J'entends ça, j'entends la oui, comment ça tourne, ça rata, ça rata tout, je t'attends, je t'attends. I don't speak French, but my GPS does. French speakers. Always get a little tickle when they're in the car. Shotoka! I met a French girl this year. Her name, Natalie. From the south of France. Where they make the triple cream Zotota. She is a thinker. Americans, they act. And then they think. The French, they think, and then they think. She speaks English, but she has a French word for a certain a part of my anatomy. A certain gold part of my anatomy. She calls it Paul Pon. French love. J'entends, j'attends sa vie. Rons à chevalier. Jean sa chevalier. Zosacon, Zosacon. I don't speak French. So when I met Natalie's mother, she sounded like a bird. Which means, are you warm enough? I said, thank you. No need to worry. I have a mother of my own. <laughs> This year, I also met another French speaker from Quebec, a Quebecois, a singer with a beautiful voice. She brought her mother too. A mother that did not speak like a bird, but like a French sailor. I decided I would have these two girls meet. So, on Purim, which is the Jewish holiday like Halloween, where Jews get dressed up in Halloween costumes and they drink so much, they don't know the difference between right and wrong. These two French girls met each other.
And they started speaking only in French. They spoke in French for three hours. Ignoring all the English speakers at the party. When everyone left, it was just the girls. And I looked at their faces and I thought, what love? But then Natalie got up and she decided to leave. Okay. And I got worried. Because I was alone with the Quebecois. And temptation was strong. So I went to the bathroom and I did what one quarter of all Americans do when they get nervous. I took la meds. Usually I wait for the girl to go to the bathroom. But tonight, I was taking la meds for one reason and one reason only. To kill Paul Pond. So I took them and I went downstairs where the Quebecois was and she said, you know, I know you have a girlfriend, but I want you. And when a woman says she wants a man, there's very little he can do to resist unless he has laments. <laughs> so there was a scuffle and I didn't know if Paul Pond was going to survive. I didn't know if the meds were going to win or Paul Pond was going to win. And there was a scuffle and 45 minutes in, finally, finally, victory, France beats Canada. American pharmaceuticals are more powerful than French mojo. I fell asleep and Paul Pond was defeated. True love conquers all. Sacre bleu. Je t'aime. C'est la vie. Ask for it, you got it. Snap Judgment TV, raw. See what you're hearing. Added stuff available on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now don't go anywhere, because Snap will be right back. Now, did you do it yet? Did you do it yet? Did you do it yet? Ah, you did. Thank you. Thank you for sharing Snap Judgment on your Facebook on your Twitter, on your Google+. Thank you for demanding that your public radio station carry NPR's new hit show. And look, this here is your snap judgment. 
and your baby don't smile if your baby don't eat. Show these storytellers some love. They need it. Besides, you want to see what Joshua Walters looks like and you can. Check out the film right now on our website, snapjudgment.org. Again, share it with someone you love, hide it from someone you hate, snapjudgment.org. You're listening to Snap Judgment Live, Drama Mama. We join the show already in progress. Our next guest is Joyce Lee, one of my favorite artists in all the land. Amen. 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 Miss Joyce Lee. Now, there are many sides to this story I'm going to tell, but I got the spotlight, so mine's the truest. (laughs) Now, you ain't never heard of drama until you've heard the death of a grandma drama in a Pentecostal church (laughs) surrounded by grieving, saint, and sinning black folks. Before my granny died, she lived with my father, a deacon who I had not been on speaking terms with, but I would call my granny regularly. And one time while on the phone, my granny put down the phone and through the muffle, I could hear her screaming and a raised voice. And then I heard the door slam shut. But granny got back on the phone and tried to pretend that nothing happened, but I could hear her voice pulling back tears. So I asked granny, was that my father? What is he screaming about? Uh, toilet tissue. I said, what? She said, well, you know, when I moved in here, I promised that part of my chores would be to refill all the toilet tissue in the house, and I forgot. I said, Granny, put my father on the phone right now. Granny refused and begged me never ever to say anything to my father about the toilet tissue incident for fear that it would cause a lot of drama. I promised. Three weeks after that, Granny died. The funeral was full of the same church people that I grew up with, the same, saved, sanctified, Holy Ghost-filled, whores, child molesters, and wife beaters were in full attendance. But who weren't there was everybody who used my granny the most while she was living. Only three of my granny's children showed up. My Aunt Anne, who is a drug-addicted prostitute, My father, the deacon, who obviously loses his religion over toilet tissue, and my Aunt Ree. Now, my Aunt Ree is a beautifully dark-skinned, frail-framed, horribly honest alcoholic. (laughs) And at her mother's funeral, my Aunt Ree is drunk outside her mind and sitting right next to me. She says, see, see, look at here. What a church full of jackasses. They, they got the pamphlet wrong. See here, it say, it say mama had 10 kids. She had 16. What a church full of dummies. See, and then they wonder why I look for Jesus in a bottle. <laughs> the mistakes continue. The pastor just didn't seem to know when to sit down and shut up without being insulting. <sighs> I'm going to keep talking until the spirit come. Amen? I don't care if this funeral 
will turn into a shut-in and we in it for the heat of the hour. Sister Joyce, uh, uh, where you been? We ain't seen you since freedom. Stop being a prodigal child. You're getting old and dying just like your grandmama too, amen? Yeah. Sister Ann, I'ma tell you something. I'ma tell you, your mama gone. Your mama gone. And them drugs and them men got you fit to jump in this casket with her, amen? Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Now I'm gonna sit down. But I ain't gonna shut up. That was the introduction for loved ones to have the floor and speak. My, uh, my Henri almost fell outside a chair when my father was the first to jump up and speak. Oh, here we go, here we go, baby girl, here we go, here we go. Huh, huh, huh. I bet you the body gonna be as warm as red wine by the time he finished bumping his gums. Listen, I'm gonna go outside for a cigarette I can't hang. I begged for her to stay because she was my piece in this whole situation. My father began his speech with a real sweet memory of Granny before he started his fussing. You know, uh, now they say it's a shame, you know. They say it's a shame that it take a funeral to bring a family together. See, now it behooves us to start acting like a family and not use the death of a family member to start loving on each other and caring about each other. Loving on each other and caring about each other, my temper shot through the roof. As soon as my father sat down, I jumped up to speak my piece. And I started walking to the mic. And all I could think about was how disrespectful the entire funeral had been. And I had a poem in my pocket I'd written just for granny, but poetry was the last thing on my mind. I intended to tell everybody in that church off. And I knew just where to begin, with my father and that damn toilet tissue. So I held the microphone. I got my attitude all ready until my eye hit Granny's coffin. And that's when the truth hit me. This day didn't belong to anyone except for Granny. And in the midst of self-righteous fools and grieving hypocrites, my Granny was being forgotten at her own funeral. I took the poem out of my pocket and read it to Granny. And I thanked her for giving me my first journal before I even knew that writing was my love. And I asked Granny for the only thing left to ask her for in that situation. I asked her for a double portion of her awesome spirit. And when nothing else but sobbing, tears, and sniffles filled the microphone, you could have heard a pin drop. That is, until Henri decided to get up and speak her piece. Ha! Now that shuts y'all back with buzzers up now, didn't it? Silly and ugly, church of the silly and ugly, that's what I'ma call you. Come on, Joyce, I'm tired of it. So we left the church. I, I was still heartbroken. I am still heartbroken. So as far as my father and the toilet tissue incident, well, I am still keeping my promise to Granny. I mean, I've never said one thing to my father. I, I'm just telling you guys. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, I'd be starting a lot of drama.
Our next guest is a writer and a poet. <laughs> but what he really does is inspire youth to seek their own inner artists. Please put your hands together for Mr. Josh Healy. Last year, I went to the best wedding ever. It was in Connecticut, and my cousin Naomi was getting married to her girlfriend, Lisa. And it was a beautiful wedding. It was a beautiful wedding. All the families were there, the aunts, the uncles, the grannies, the babies. The Manischewitz wine was flowing out the hall like honey. The rabbi got drunk and punched out the DJ after having Nagila. It was <laughs> awesome. But the best part about it, here were two women getting married, and it just wasn't a big deal. They were in love, and that was enough, which was especially cool because my cousin Naomi had never really come out to the family. But we have this idea in America. It's like, you're not gay until I know that you're gay. And you know that I know that you're gay, then you're gay. Which makes no sense. It makes no sense. So I thought about this as a straight dude. Okay, as a mostly straight dude. Let's keep it real. I thought about what would it be like if straight folks had to come out too. So I imagine, I imagine myself, 15 years old, having to come out to my parents, tell them the truth about what's going on. So I'm like, mom, dad, I have something I need to tell you. Mom, you're probably gonna wanna sit down for this. And the thing, the thing you have to understand about my parents is, my parents are super liberal. I mean, super crazy liberal. I'm talking pro-choice, pro-Cuba, pro-Lorax. They make, they make Berkeley look like West Texas. <laughs> so I know that somewhere in the back of their minds, they want a gay son. <laughs> they need a gay son. It's like the missing badge of honor on their socialist Boy Scout uniforms. So here we are. I'm nervous. We're sitting at the kitchen table. My mom, sitting in full lotus position. My dad, standing beside her, gently massaging her shoulders like any good feminist husband would. And me, my legs are shaking, my voice is cracking. 
And I'm like, Mom! <laughs> Dad. There's something I need to tell you. I don't know how to say it, so I'm just going to say it. I'm, I'm straight. And they're like, no! 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 My mom just sits there, shaking her head, trying to find the center of her chi. And she's saying, where did we go wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how this happened. It didn't just happen. I was born this way. But I tried to fit in. Lord knows I tried. I used to wear purple. I went to every Lady Gaga show I could, but no, no. I like Metallica. <laughs> and bowling. <laughs> and mom and dad, yes, I like women. And I like this one woman. And mom, I want you to meet her, but I'm nervous. There's something you need to know about her first. I'm afraid to tell you, but you need to know, mom, she's white. And they're like, no! Another badge ripped off the socialists wanting to have a biracial grandbaby Boy Scout uniform. And I tell you this because it's tough and it's true. The beautiful tragedy of coming out straight in America. So to understand this story, you have to know that I was itinerant. And this is really kind of another word for broke. <laughs> but I was doing my thing. I was traveling around the world and um, being broke, lying on people's couches, you know, running from place to place. The one luxury I allowed myself, though, was books. I loved books. I got books on chimpanzees, got books on Thai cooking. I got a book in Braille. 
I can see fine, I love books. So I sent them all back home. And it was, it was two, they were like letters. Letters to an older me, an older Glenn, that was going to be able to kick back someday, chill in his den. <laughs> his den, just like Freddie Bunch. Kick back and read those, those books. It was going to be great. And one day, I was minding my own business. I was in Japan, and I was eating an apple. And I got a phone call from my mother, who never calls me. Wasting up her long distance. She called me and said, Glenn, how you doing, mama? Glenn, me and the ladies here, me and the church ladies, we got to dividing. Dividing? And I hear this shouting and hollering in the background, dividing. Like, yeah, we got to dividing. See, turns out Satan was up in my house. That's a shame, mama. That's a shame. I was Satan up in your house. Yeah, Satan was up in my house, up in my cabinets, walking on my clean floor. Uh-huh. And we went downstairs. We could sense his presence. I bet you could. I chased him down there. I, I want to know where he was coming from, son. I want to know where he was coming from. Went right downstairs in the basement. And the ladies were with me, and they agreed. They could feel it, too. They could feel the evil power. They could feel it, and son, it was coming right from your pile of books. <laughs> Mama, right from your pile of books, son. And I looked there, and right on top, right on top was satanic verses. <laughs> Mother, satanic verses is not what you think it is. See, there is this Dude, Salman Rushdie, and they got a fight. No, I know satanic verses when I see them, son. I know what a satanic verse is. How you gonna bring the verses of Satan up in my house? Mama, you really gotta calm down. That book is going in the fire along with all the rest of them. Mama, Mama, leave my books alone. Hey, you can take satanic verse. I don't even like that book, but just leave everything else alone. Uh-uh, it's all got the same taint. It's all going in the same fire. Hot. Mama. Mama. Mother. Mother. Leave my books alone. I just thought I'd let you know. Mother. Mama. Leave my books alone. I just thought I would let you know, son. Goodbye. Mama. Mama. Click. I called her back. I called her back. I called her back. I called her back a dozen. 30, 40 times, no pickup. No, she didn't. No, she didn't. No, she did not. I called her back the next day. From morning till night, I called her back the next day. I called her back. I kept calling her back. Mama, no. Mama, no, mama, no, mama, no. Finally, finally, on day number three, she called me. How you doing, son? I was so angry. I was so angry. Did she do it? Did she do it? Did she burn up my books, my treasures, my letters to an older me? No way, no way, no way. How am I doing? I was about to ask her, Mama, did you really do it? And then I thought, why ask questions 
you already know the answer to. How am I doing? I'm fine, mama. How are you? Snap judgment. Have I introduced you to Mr. Alex Mandel? David Brandt on the sticks. Tim Frank. Tim Frank. Tim Frank. Tim Frank. Tim Frank. DJ. Which one? Which one? And even though, even though this is not the news, this ain't the news, this is NPR. Peace out. Snap Judgment Live, raw, uncensored, drama mama was produced by myself but never alone. The amazing Snap Judgment Film production crew, Mark Ristich, Will Urbina, Pat Masidi Miller, Renzo Gorio, and Mitzi Ma. Go right now to snapjudgment.org to watch the show. We cannot wait for you to see it. All things are possible with Team Snap, the hardest working crew in radio, Stephanie Fu, Anna Sussman, Natalia Yeager, and Rita Daniels. Many, many thanks Thank to the you. Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the CPB, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and KLW San Francisco. Also, we really appreciate the Oakland Museum of California. Until next week, peace and soul so from Stat Judgment. Of this crew and this band, Alex Mandel. Alex Mandel composed each and every piece of music you heard tonight. And this amazing band, the Snap Judgment Players. One more time. David Brandt, Tim Frick, DJ, which one? We appreciate it. Thank you for the love. Sexual chocolate. <laughs> I especially want to thank, I know they're in the house, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting for making this all possible. We're in a corporation. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah.